Welcome to the Phil Hayes Show, our get-together where we sit down and talk about all things Leeds United. My name's Dan Moylan, with me from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company, and the app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. And for loads more great Leeds content, subscribe to The Athletic ad-free podcasts as a subscriber by listening through The Athletic app. That 40% discount is still there for you on a subscription if you use the promo code LEEDSPOD. We very much enjoyed The Athletic reboot of the 98-99 season. It was covered every day. And Phil, at the minute, it's articles that couldn't previously be published and are making it on their way to The Athletic. Yeah, that's right. Um, very good one, actually. It was put together by by all of us, which was stories that um, genuinely couldn't be written because you were told you weren't allowed to, um, and there were details in it which you, you could never really publish. Um, and if you flick onto it and have a look through, there are two Legion United-related ones there, um, so I'll leave a guessing game for people. Um, but the piece I've done was on David Batty and his time as a, a kid at Tingley Athletic, um, the club between, between Wakefield and Leeds, where he, he turned up on the back of a, a Yorkshire Post advert with his dad and, and with another lad who come with his father as well I was basically looking for a club to play for and was taken on by Tingley and Tingley found a way to bend the rules to get him into the Leeds City Boys which is obviously the, the feeder team for, for Leeds United back at that stage in the early 80s and it was fascinating to go back and catch up with people who'd known him as a schoolboy people who'd known him as a, as a very very young player and to find out that, that the batty who everybody grew to know and love at Leeds was exactly the same as the batty that they knew uh, at the age of 10 age of, of 11 um, pretty quiet off the pitch an absolute animal on it and pretty much loved by everybody and we say that we are all uh, sat down together. However, we are not. We are recording remotely in line with uh, with the current lockdown. Uh, Phil, how's it been for you then at the minute? Mm, coming to you from a box room in York with empty cereal bowls and about eight mugs and glasses and two girls downstairs who were told not to interrupt for the next hour but kind of nodded vaguely in a way that makes me think that in about half an hour's time they're going to come running in going, Daddy, I'm hungry or something like that. So we'll, we'll see how we go. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit strange and it is certainly out of the ordinary to say the least. But look open, I'm sure you all are too. I'm curious why you're in a box room, Phil, rather than your famous loft. I thought the conversion would have been paying itself back in absolute spades during the lockdown. Still isn't finished. What? I I, I jest. It's been finished for so long that it's doing what um, jobs like that always do, which is dropping to bits now and and in need of a a complete repaint. But you're right, I should have done for all time's sake. Next week, let's go for that. It's somewhere to hide from the children, if nothing else. There's nowhere to hide from the children, ever. Well, you say that, I'm in the garden as we speak. (laughs) I'm sat out on the decking in the garden. <laughs> That's because Dan lives in, in Bradford with broadband from 1997. <laughs> Holding his phone in the air. So, Phil, you brought us an exclusive this week then about the wage deferral. Can you talk us through that? That's the latest piece of information we've we've really got concerning Leeds United. Yeah, we're, we're into wage deferral territory, which was always going to be part of the natural progression of the, the shutdown after the, the coronavirus. The, the initial discussions and the initial questions amongst the clubs and, and the governing bodies themselves were mainly about 
you know, how this was going to be resolved, how the season was going to be finished, whether or not they were going to be able to pick the season up at some point and, you know, in the case of the Championship, complete the, the final nine games and, and get a finished table um, or whether there might have to be some other strategy. But it was inevitable because of the the suspension of the fixtures and the fact that, that every club was suddenly losing out on, on match day income and significant revenue streams that they were going to have to move towards cost-cutting measures pretty quickly. I mean, in the case of Leeds, they had five home games left, all of which would have sold out. So you would have been talking crowds of um, 35,000, which, you know, is, is 12,000 paying spectators on top of um, sort of 22 and a half, 23,000 season ticket holders and sizable amounts of money, um, you know, even before you start touching on merchandise and um, commercial income and, and all the other revenue streams. And, and there's no doubt that, that Leeds, like virtually every, every club now, um, have a cash flow issue. And so on Tuesday, there was a meeting um, between like, so Liam Cooper and Luke Ayling and, and Stuart Dallas with um, Chief Executive Angus Kinnear and Director of Football Victor Otter, where it was essentially agreed in principle that a deferral was necessary and, and that the players would, would support that. And, and I think what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, and it has started already in, in some quarters, is, is a trend of clubs going down this route and agreeing with the players that they will defer wages for a, an extended period and certainly until the, the season starts up again or at least until some football starts up again and, and they have crowds coming through the door. Um, it's important to say that, that it is a deferral and not a pay cut. This money will be paid to the players further down the line. It's, it's not that they're foregoing the cash, but they and, and Bielsa and his first team staff will go for a, a reduced wage in the interim, potentially for as long as three or four months, depending on on the, the, the length of time taken to get the season or to get some football up and running again. From what we're hearing this evening and we're talking on Wednesday night, it looks as if this is pretty much in place and agreed. I think there are, there are various bits and pieces to, to iron out, but... The next um, monthly wage bill at Leeds is, was and is due this Friday and I think they would want to try and get an agreement in place before that comes to, to begin the, the kind of cost cutting straight away. So I suspect that, that in the next 24 hours or so we might well see kind of decisive movement with this. And the club um, seems to have lost about two and a half million pounds in matchday revenue from those five games. That was the estimate that Andrea Radrazzani put forward, wasn't it? It'll be roughly around about that. And you can certainly see why that would be the case, given the number of fans who are coming in through the gates for, for each whole match. And, and I mean, this extends right the way through the leagues. And we, we touched on in the last podcast, you know, even in the Premier League, there will be clubs at that level who, despite the income they have, particularly from television revenue, will be slightly concerned about their ability to absorb the losses that are going to come from having no match day income, you know, potentially until until August, September, you know, that, that, that time of year, you're, you're talking the best part of four or five six months without any match day revenue if if the coronavirus shutdown does last for that long and you know there are substantial savings to be made at, at least they have a, a very wide range of salaries on the wage bill they, they, they go from somebody like Casilla who's in the region of kind of 35 to, to 40,000 pounds a week down to your players like Jamie Shackleton your, your Robbie Gotts who, who are on considerably less than that and, and you know nothing like that that type of wage and what's been discussed across the board in, in the championship is, is a drop to around about 6,000 pounds a week which is half of the, the kind of average wage in the championship of roughly Roughly sort of twelve thousand pounds. I think it's likely that, that that's what leads the players at Leeds will agree to to go to certainly in the in the short term. And and likewise, I think other clubs are trying to aim for that figure to make the, the sort of savings that they need and um, to make sure that they kind of come through this period without significant financial damage. And you know, two and a half million pounds is, is a lot of money to Leeds. They've got a turnover in the region of, of forty five million pounds, but the wage bill is is kicking on towards forty million pounds these days, which is you know not far off a hundred percent of what what is coming in um, in in cash flow. So they are. 
going to have to save money. They they will save money, or at least they will defer payments through this this agreement, which I think is is highly likely to come now. And the bottom line is that it, it has to be done. And, and I suspect that by the time we get two or three weeks further down the line, you'll find that an awful lot of championship clubs and, and an awful lot of clubs across the continent will have followed suit. At Bayern Munich, you've got players and directors who've um, done a deferral of, of 20%. You've got Birmingham who, according to the Daily Mail earlier, have agreed to, to a sizable cut in their wages on a, on a temporary basis. So it is happening and, and it does need to be done. And, and I don't, I think amongst the playing staff and the, and the coaching staff, there is a realisation that as much as they would rather be getting paid in full through this period and as much as they've all got financial commitments that in some ways they will need to meet, um, there isn't much of an alternative at this stage. With so many people struggling at the minute during the coronavirus crisis, there's a tendency to lean towards the opinion of saying, well, they're footballers, they'll be all right, they're all millionaires. Do we have any sympathy for them then, Michael? I suppose for some of them, particularly the younger lads, maybe. Um, Kiko Kusia, maybe less so. I'm sure he's fine. Uh, he certainly should be anyway. I mean, I suppose, Phil, are the... It's only the playing staff at this stage who have been asked to take wage deferrals because I, I presume the club as a whole has more or less shut down. So like the people from the ticket office and all that sort of thing, are they being looked after for now? Elite clarified that what's happening with, with match day staff and, and ticket office staff and, and it is down to essentially a skeleton staff at Ellen Road and I think it will go further again given that there is there is literally nothing in, nothing happening in the game at the moment. I mean, Kinea will be in charge of, of sorting out the, the, the details and the final details of, of the agreement. But in, in terms of the, the players themselves, they will, they will take deferrals the staff will as well I think it's highly likely actually that Bielsa will, will probably forgo most if, if not all of his wage during this period I say forgo again we'll, we'll defer it rather than take a, a pay cut but they will certainly do the same as the players and, and assist with this and obviously the, the, the money we're talking about and, and the cuts that we're talking about can only apply to the players because they are the ones who are on wages big enough to, to be able to make this cut I mean in, t- in terms of sympathy Michael's right that, that if you're earning 35 40,000 pounds a week then then you should have nest eggs and you should have um, some money tucked away and able to cope through these periods. But players are no different to the rest of us in that they, they live to their means and, and they spend the money that they have and they commit the money that they have to, to higher mortgages and, and other things. And much as you get a, a very, very healthy wage in the championship these days, it's not so, the, the wages are not so vast that they make you a millionaire overnight. They're not so vast that they necessarily set you up for life um, unless you're careful and, and unless you're sensible with it. So there will be players who have commitments that they'll feel under pressure to meet over the next few months but I think there's a definitely a perception of, of how it how it will look not just at Leeds but at other clubs if players refuse to take deferrals and, and refuse to do their bit and like I say in, in the absence of the the income that was expected and, and the income that the clubs have, have financed for and, and, and have accounted for they don't have a lot of choice in this scenario I'm sure they would rather have been paid in full on Friday but as it is there's some some difficult choices have got to be made the example I always think of when I this comes up is Matthew Jones who I remember after he he was one of the first of O'Leary's babies to get sold and went to Leicester where it didn't really work out and he had some injuries and he really wanted to move to Nottingham Forest but he uh, he was quite honest about it at the time saying look I'm I'm paid I think it was something like £35,000 a week by Leicester Nottingham Forest can't pay me anything near that and I can't afford to move and he was kind of a, he was a bit of a canary in the coal mine of football's financial collapse he was the first one to kind of say I'm stuck in Leicester City's reserves because financially there is no way I can leave this club and the pay cuts that they are being asked to take are uh, significant if it's if we're talking 50% of over 6,000 then would you know they're losing 20 grand a week or having 20 grand a week deferred in bonus cases but as we were talking on our other podcast it kind of hints at a 
a longer term problem where they are just paid too much in the first place. You kind of have to separate the two things out. One, football's got itself into a real pickle by paying upwards in some cases of 100% of its income out on salaries. But at the same time, as you mentioned, players are just in the situation where that's what they're getting paid and that's what they budget for. And now they have to uh, to make arrangements as, as much as any of us. And Phil, one of the criticisms that's been levelled at the club in this testing time is over the season ticket renewals as well. Now, Andrea Radrazani responded on Twitter saying that Angus Kinnear was looking at something. Do we have any idea what that something might be in terms of deferring those payments? No, nothing beyond what Radrazani tweeted um, the other night. And obviously this is coming at a time when, when they're trying to sort out the, the player wage deferrals as well, which will be taking taking priority, I think, um, at the moment. The, the deadline for season ticket renewals is obviously right upon us. Uh, but um, I, I gather that they've had about 80% um, renewals so far. So the bulk of the season tickets that were, they're taking up for this season have been renewed. But you're right. I mean, the, there are going to be issues for people who no longer have the, the means to, to pay you know the instalments that they were planning to pay, and, and again through no fault of their own, because again, like like with the club, they they will have budgeted, and and you would like to think that there would be some concession made to to help people deal with that, given that this is probably going to catch an awful lot of season ticket holders who weren't expecting to be to be short of money in in this stage. Just just to go back as well to what Moscow was saying about Matthew Jones, it was interesting speaking a long time ago now, but to Dominic Matteo about the period when Leeds were were in real dire trouble prior to the relegation from the Premier League and the financial situation situation had got to the point where as it always does with clubs who are either about to implode or, or are looking at administration players start to get asked about taking deferrals and and you know taking temporary wage cuts to, to kind of ease the burden on the clubs and Matteo when, at the time when he was captain he, he was asked by the media you know would, would you be open to the idea of taking a wage deferral and, and he said I absolutely would if if that's what has to be done to help if that's what has to be done to ease the pressure just for a short period then yeah I'm very much open to that back into the dressing room he had players there who were absolutely furious with him because they felt that he was talking for them they weren't really interested in a deferral they wanted their money and they didn't like the idea that Matteo was suggesting something that might come back and bite them in the form of, of them being forced to, to defer wages until further down the line when, when they needed the cash and, and I think it kind of underlines how complicated and how political these processes can be. I'm told that the players at Leeds are, are broadly supportive of this and, and will support it but there will be some who will be frustrated by it there will be some who will be concerned about about the, the cash that they're going to have to give up you know temporarily and, and it's never an easy um, agreement to come to but I do think they'll get there I think they'll get there in the next couple of days and, and I get the sense that they really do want to get there before this wage bill is supposed to drop on Friday And football feels an awful long way away now doesn't it? It really does. I mean, the, the players are still at home, isolating as best they can. They they are actually using Thorpe Arch, but again, in isolation, they're, they're individually, they're driving to the training ground, they're being waved in by, by security, and they're able to use the, the running track that Bielsa had installed there, and, and obviously the fields as well are, are there to be to be run round. And I think it's a, it's a very, very useful facility for them because it is almost impossible at home, unless you're out running in the streets, to get anything like the, the kind of exercise that you would need. And, and you'll have seen on, on Instagram, um, Jack Harris post in particular that they are getting fitness programs and those are sent to them every evening to be followed and they've got exercise bikes and they've got various various tools and apps to, to help them through but it's nothing like a standard training session and, and admittedly while running around a track is not like a standard training session either it will be better for the core fitness and it will be better for the for the match fitness um, so so that is happening but essentially they are all still at home and, and I think we'll be looking at at least another few weeks before anybody feels like coming back to Thorpe Arch full time. Watching Jack Harrison's 
fitness work on Instagram. I don't know how it compares to normal training, but he terrifies me. He's going to come back looking like an absolute beast, and I'm I'm a little bit frightened of what Jackie Harrison is going to be like in, for the uh, the six week or nine week burst of games that we get. He already is a bit of a beast. I mean, when when I interviewed him earlier in the season, he was talking about how when he was over in New York. And in the same squad as, as Frank Lampard, he, he used to look at Lampard's thighs and realise that in order to get up to kind of proper professional level or at least the level you would need for the, the Premier League or a, a high level in England, um, he was going to have to work on his physique. But something tells me that, that his are probably bigger than Lampard's these days. And, and you'd look pretty effortless um, and didn't, didn't break sweat. But the thing that did occur to me was how small and narrow that room was and how easy it must be for footballers who are used to being out in the fresh air to, to get cabin fever in, in those circumstances. I, I suspect Bielsa will probably be coping okay with this he'll be he'll be at home with his with his videos and and his analysis and so on um, and and I know that his staff are still being kept busy and and are still being what somebody was telling me that back after he, he he joined the club he asked his staff just as a little project to analyse every goal that had been scored stroke conceded in um, the 2018 World Cup and to come up with training drills to either prevent those goals or or to score those goals so they'll not be idle and they'll not be bored um, and if they were thinking this might give them a rest I suspect they'll be wrong I don't know if you've seen the clip of. Uh... Tom Kearney on Talk Sport this morning, but he gave the impression that he was maybe not all that into the idea of training by himself. I don't know if, if they think that message when we get back into the season, the Leeds players are more focused on this sort of thing, having been given the full fitness plans to stick to during the summer and things. Yeah, I think you can look at this two ways. On on the one hand, Bielsa and the, the fitness team, fitness coaches at Leeds, will, will have them work so ha- as hard as possible during this period. So they, they should, in theory, come back as, as well prepared as as anybody else I think every squad is going to need a period of two or three weeks of intensive training to to get to the level they need to be for, for championship matches and I don't think there's any way in which um, even when the EFL is ready to go again that they can click their fingers and start up instantly I think they're going to have to leave a, a short window for everybody to get back into the, the usual routine I imagine Kearney's probably speaking for everybody really a lot of the players are trying to put a brave face on this and, and to crack on with it but they'll, they'll be climbing the wall because it's just not what they used to and also it's come at a point in the season where everything felt so close and, and, and everything was was on the line and the, the flip side of this is that, that obviously Bielsa, Bielsa football has played at such a level of, of intensity that the players are going to have to be absolutely right when they do come back and, and if, if the fitness has slipped or if the conditioning has slipped then it could potentially be more of a, a drawback for Bielsa because of the, the level that he expects them to be at but as I say I would have thought that if there's any window in which and, and there surely has to be in which teams are able to train as they would normally train then two or three weeks of that and, and they should be right but I mean it, it is worth saying that at no stage do players who play regularly ever have a period like this where they're away from training or, or away from a, a football for so long you know you, even in the summer when they're, they're technically off they all keep fit some of them take fitness trainers with them when they go abroad you never ever have a, a scenario unless you're injured where you have two, three, four, five months of no games and so I don't think anybody knows exactly how they're going to feel when they come back to this and, and Bielsa is probably the same he won't know for sure how the team are going to pick up when, when we start again Again, and it's going to be a challenge for him, be a challenge for, for every manager. And it is completely new for, for everybody. There is nobody in football who's dealt with this before. I don't know if you remember Paddy Kenny. <laughs> I sure do. I mean, he, he didn't look, he looked like a man who, who had a good few weeks at an all-inclusive. He did. And you kind of saw the impact of that, which <laughs> which is, is kind of my point. I mean, there's a great story about Paddy Kenny during um, Brian McDermott's time. I, I say great story, not a great story at all, but it, it kind of made you laugh in a macabre way. Kenny was not happy there and, and he was you know he was not good for the dressing room in that period and um, McDermott had spoken to him about potentially going on up a move to, to Bradford City for him so on the Monday morning or, or whenever it was he, 
he said to, to Kenny First thing like you know I've, I've spoken to Bradford they'll take you on loan if you want to finish the season there or go for a month or whatever else it's your call you're more than, than welcome to and as you'll remember at that point poor old Jack Butland was getting completely peppered in, in the Leeds goal and, and was first choice for his sins um, and Kenny said to McDermott alright I'll have a think about it you know obviously having asked to go on loan he said I'll have a think about it and I'll let you know afterwards and then at the end of training literally got into his car drove off and went home and left McDermott sitting there saying well what is it? Is he going or not? And and that loan just, just kind of fell apart. So I think if we're looking for examples of footballers to follow, Paddy Kenny at the back end of his career is probably not the one to go for. This athletic podcast brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, head to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. There you will find the style quiz. Give Stitch Fix a few details about your personal style, budget, size and shape, and the sort of clobber that you like to wear. Then your personal stylist will send you the five items of clothing, each one carefully handpicked for you from a selection of 100 brands, including names that you will know of and loads of up-and-coming designers too. Try on everything at home and then you can pay for what you love send the rest back there is a £10 charge for your stylist's time but that's then knocked off the cost of anything that you decide to buy afterwards the advantage of Stitch Fix is that you get to try before you buy delivery and returns are free both ways and you don't need a subscription to sign up as well get started with Stitch Fix today support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now that's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x.co.uk forward slash athletic Looking back across the years then, Phil, there have been certain players that have always been rumoured to be heading their way to Leeds, like fantasy signings, if you like. I could think over the years, like Trevor Sinclair, John Scales, that type of player. And I think Jared Bowen, you could argue, was heading that way until the most recent transfer window. In this case, I'm talking about young Erling Haaland, Alfie's son, who is making great waves at Borussia Dortmund now and has been across Europe for quite some time. Yeah, you, you were quite modest there. You didn't mention Maradona. And he didn't mention Ibrahimovic, who Radrazani has kind of been name-checking earlier this week um, as somebody he kind of spoke to in January. Tentatively, I think, was the word he used, which probably translates as never happening in, in a million years. Haaland sounds like the sort of outlandish transfer target now because of where he is with Dortmund and, and how well he did with Salzburg and because of the value that, that he's reaching and, and the amount of money he's going to cost as and when he, he moves on from Dortmund in the future. But at the time when Leeds were looking at him, and this is two summers ago, he, he was at Molde um, in Norway and doing very, very well there, but still extremely young and very raw. You know, whilst attracting attention from, from a lot of big clubs, wasn't necessarily attracting huge bids. Um, and, you know, Victor Otter spoke with Haaland. He, you know, he spoke to him and discussed with him the possibility of coming to Leeds. Um, Leeds certainly playing on the fact that, that Haaland had been born here, um, that he was likely to be be interested on that basis. And they were trying to sell to him, you know, the, the idea that the club were going to be promoted, ideally, and um, were heading for the Premier League. And, and if you look closely at Haaland's career and, and the decisions he's making about the clubs he goes to, from Bryn FK, where he started, to Molde in Norway, a kind of natural step, um, to Salzburg in Austria, when he could probably have gone to a more major league than that. And, and even Borussia. Dortmund you know fine club as they are and, and, and huge German club as they are again it, it was an opportunity for him to potentially look for a club at just a slightly higher level up and, and slightly more elite but I think he is a good judge a good judge of, of clubs that are going to be good for his his development as a player not only the, the development of his of his bank account so at, at that point Leeds were, were genuinely quite optimistic about it they were optimistic about being able to to meet the sort of price that Mulder would be looking for and, and able to, to pay Haaland what he would want and he would certainly have come in even at that very 
very young age of 17, 18 he would have come in as one of the higher earners at the club because they knew they would have to pay that money but as soon as Salzburg got involved in that and as soon as Salzburg started talking figures and, and making offers they were so far ahead of what Leeds were able to pay and, and able to do it so comfortably that, that it was a non-starter from that point on so it doesn't kind of fall into the Maradona category or the Ibrahimovic category of that was completely ridiculous and, and was never going to happen I think for a period there was a genuine possibility that it, that it might have gone in, it might have gone Leeds way and, and it might have actually led to, to him coming here but but ultimately that, that ship has sailed and regardless of what leads to this season regardless of what league they're playing in next year it's going to take a long long time before they're at the level where they'd be seriously on, on Haaland's radar again Because I heard a rumour that there was a 65 million euro release clause in his Borussia Dortmund contract I say heard a rumour it was something I saw on Twitter Is there any truth in that? Because that would then potentially in years to come put him within Leeds's range you know subject to Champions League football you would imagine I, be- I believe that's correct, and it was um, it was a similar thing at Salzburg. There, there was a, a buyout clause in there, which meant that clubs were one hundred percent clear from the start what, what they were going to have to pay for Haaland. I think it, it you know, if, if he was at Dortmund scoring as he is, and there was no clause, no um, buyout clause inserted there, then it really is a case of Dortmund naming the price, and, and particularly when you're you're very much in a, a seller's market and able to to eke anything you like out of clubs with with the money to pay. Um, but no, I, I believe there is a, a sell on. A buyout clause there, and 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 it would make him affordable to 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 clubs like you say at Champions League level. I think that's the thing now with Haaland. He, he's done so well at Dortmund. He's made such a big impact in the Champions League that his next move, if he does move on from Dortmund, and and if he is still at this level of performance, is going to have to be to a Champions League club. He isn't going to drop down to Europa League. He isn't going to drop down regardless of what his affinity is with Leeds, and and even that's been kind of called into question by him recently. He's not going to drop down to a side even if they're in the Premier League that. that have no European football and aren't mixing with the West players so it is inevitable now that in order to sign him you're going to have to be qualified for the Champions League you're going to have to have that sort of finance um, and I don't get the impression much as he, he seems to be very sensible about his decisions and much as he seems to be open to, to clubs who aren't necessarily right in the top bracket I don't get the impression at all that he's sentimental about this he does seem extremely driven very ambitious and, and pretty clear on on what the best moves are for him at the times when he feels like he has to move. Because we did the maths on when he was born because we watched the Leeds-Roma game in the UEFA Cup, the second one, the one that Leeds won at Ellen Roma, that Harry Kuehl goal, a game in which uh, Alfie Harland played and the maths was quite startling because he was uh, he was in womb at that time. He was, although I think if we're trying to work out the timings, I suspect that it would have been around about the the time of um, the locomotive Moscow two-legged tie when the Hallands were, shall we say, getting busy. I think um, so. It was certainly in that season, and it was at a point where, where Haaland was was having a good year um, for Leeds. And I mean, it's a strange one with with Erling. I don't know if you noticed, but his media interviews are, are very very odd these. Days. They're very stunted. They're very intense to give one more answers, and and I certainly watch them. And I wonder how much of that has come from from Alfie, his dad, on the back of the kind of relentless coverage that he had of the the Roy Keane incident when he was at Manchester City, the tackle, and then the subsequent comments and and everything that that went with it. I don't doubt at all that that Alfie will have been bitten by by some of the, the press coverage of him, um, and and the kind of the, the relentless nature 
of it. And it almost feels as if that's transmitted to Erling and, and, and he is very, very resistant already to, to engaging too closely with the media. I mean, there was a, a, an interview with him in Afton Blade, which is um newspaper over in, in Scandinavia a few years back where he was saying that, you know, the dream for me would be to win the Premier League with Leeds. But then recently he was asked again by a French outlet whether or not, you know, about the fact that he was a Leeds fan and, and so on. And, and he effectively said to them, I've never said that. You know, that's not the case. That's not true. And I mean, I spoke to um, to Alf Bernstein, who was um, a coach of, of Hallands over in, um, in Norway at, at Bryn FK for many, many years, coached him as a kid and actually coached a, a group of youngsters who grew up in the town together and, and kind of came through for the best part of 10 years together in, in that same squad. And, and he said in actual fact, he got the impression that, that Erling had plenty of affinity for Leeds, but also for Forest and for Manchester City on the basis that Alfie had played for, for both of those clubs as well. And he didn't think that, that there would be any sentimentality in, 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 in terms of whether or not at some point further down the line he'd, he'd like to come to Leeds. He thought it would be a kind of calculated business stroke football decision for him if, if it ever came to that. But you're right, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was around about a, a very good time for Haaland and a very good uh, time for Leeds that, that that was all going on. And it, the 1999-2000 season, when young Erling was conceived, it was a good time for Haaland, um, his father. It was a good time for Leeds. And it, it kind of tallies with what they said about Scotland during the 1998 World Cup, um, when the birth rate went up there dramatically while, while the tournament was on, although presumably before we got to the point of Morocco and Jim Layton. And talking of his dad, Alfie has passed into Leeds United folklore as something of a folk hero, really. I mean, why do you think that is, Michael? I think we saw it in that the Roma game, everything he brought, he was just very... He was he was a little bit of a... I suppose, a, to give him a modern example, he was a little bit of a Berardi, Andy Hughes-type figure in that he was never the most talented player in the squad, but he slotted in in loads of different positions and whenever he played, he never let you down. You always knew what you'd get from him and... He just seemed like quite a nice fellow as well. I remember that, speaking of the interviews, I remember the interview he gave when he signed and he was kind of giggling about the, the reputation of Leeds fans and Tetley Bitter and stuff like that. He just came across as a, as a decent bloke. Could I ask, whether the best place to ask, answer this, do you think he's a kind of cult hero and, and gone into folklore because of Roy Keane? I wouldn't say so. I feel like he's he was popular amongst Leeds fans before then. The fact we also hate Roy Keane does maybe give him a little bit of an edge because you, if you're picking sides on this thing, it's it makes it incredibly easy for Leeds fans. But I, I think he was he was well thought of at the time, and I think what happened after he left means we look back on him and think maybe we should have kept him for a bit longer. You know, we, there was another couple of seasons in Alfie, so we maybe didn't have to put up with Michael Jubry and, and even some of the players that came in like Danny Hay, who weren't as good as him, who who he, he could have filled those gaps. It was definitely a, a feeling when Roy Keane did that terrible thing to Alfie that it was like a crime being committed against one of Leeds United's most popular players. It was um, that that dirty swine um, had dared to touch somebody who I think when that happened, it was like he tackled a Leeds player. It didn't matter that he was playing for Manchester City at the time. It was so outrageous and such a disgusting thing. And also it was quickly apparent at the time, I think, that it had its roots in something that had happened at Leeds when it, I think... I'm right in remembering that Roy Keane leaned over Alfie Harland as he lay on the floor and said something along the lines of, and you can tell that David Weatherall, um, that's for him as well, which, I mean, everybody remembers David Weatherall as one of the nicest, meekest, uh, most scientifically minded people in football. And knowing that it had come from the incident where Roy Keane was injured at, at Leeds and he, he, for whatever reason, bore a grudge over it for, for years, it felt like something that was being done to our club. And, yeah, we. I liked Alfie from the the moment he turned up. There's a great little interview with him on uh, the the season review video. They interview him right at the start of the season when they're doing the squad photo, 
and he's just turned up, him and Jimmy Hasselbank, and the uh, the interviewer asks him if he, do you understand the great history of Leeds, the club that you are joining? And Alfie, with this big grin on his face, kind of says, oh, yeah, you're talking about the uh, the Tetley Brewery and things like this. And the guy just does not get the joke at all. He's like, no, I'm talking about Don Revy and Billy Bremner. And Alfie's like, yes, yes, no, I'm, I'm joking with you. It's fine. And it's kind of a shame to uh, to hear that some of that kind of spirit has maybe gone out of Erling. Um, because one of the things that always struck you about Haaland was that he was uh, he was a really good, solid player. One of those kind of a Berardi or a, an Andy Hughes or something in that. In that, but he was also quite relaxed and pretty content uh, to uh, to play his part and um, enjoy his football. Um, you'd hope that Erling can enjoy what he's doing as well without turning into an idiot. I, th- I think to be fair to me, does um, uh, he's a, he's almost a classic example of a player who won't play up as as the media would like him to, but actually a- away from football it is considered to be a, a lovely guy and, and very very likable. Um, the the piece that I did with um, Rafa Hogenstein um, and and Tom Wavell at, at the Athletic um, included some quotes from Einstein Neerland, who's the CEO at, at Mulder, and and he basically painted this picture of a guy who is thoroughly abnormal in a physical sense you know the speed that he can run at and, and his, his goal scoring but his very normal kid he, he told the, the players that um, all they used to walk past um, Neilan's office um, because that was the, the route they took back from training and Hallen knocked on his door one day and, and he was thinking to himself you know what, what does he want here is he going to ask me for more money does he want a transfer does he want a, a new contract because players never ever came to him or, apart from giving him you know a little wave would never spend the time unless there was something they wanted and he said Hallen came in and sat down and asked him how his day was going and, and asked him to explain what it was like to be chief exec of a, of a club like Mulder and, and at the end Neyland kind of you know kind of said why you know why are you interested I, I, you know I'm interested to know why you want to know this and Alan just said to him I'm just interested in people you know I just like people I just like chatting on to people and I think the benefit for him is that whereas you know, you're saying that Alfie Haaland wasn't the greatest of players, and that's certainly true, much as he was a very talented guy in his own right. With Haaland, with Erling, you know, his ability is showing that he's he's going to write headlines and he's going to he's going to do good, great, or great things without having to, to crow about it. Um, I mean, it's funny at Salzburg, he was nicknamed the cow there because initially they looked at his touch and it was so kind of wayward that they, they weren't quite sure what they'd, they'd signed. But little by little, he's improved so much. Um, and, and in a, a short space of time, as well and, and you watch him now in the Champions League and he's, he looks so comfortable at that level and, and to be as young as he is you can't help feeling that it might not be too long before you are talking about the best striker in Europe Yeah it was telling that the the celebration that the Paris Saint-Germain players got so irate about and then mocked was him just pretending to meditate which is possibly one of the, the mildest kind of it wasn't like he was ramming anything in anybody's faces and I think the uh, the thing you that's been nice with Erling he knows he knows how to be a footballer and he knows he knows what to do and i think i guess what i meant before is it's it'll maybe be a shame if we don't get if the the kind of the media drawbridge goes up and the portcullis comes down that we don't get to share that side of his character through the media the way that we did with with alfie where you kind of you always knew that alfie was a a good guy and even i remember seeing a video of him long after he'd left leeds after he'd retired in fact i think he was away at west ham manchester city fans were um, they found him in there away and they were cheering him up and down the concourse underneath the stand or chanting. And I remember watching that video and thinking, 
Leeds fans would probably do that to Alfie. Nottingham Forest fans would probably do that to Alfie. City fans will always do that when he's back. And nobody, it's not all those players where you kind of have ownership over him, where, you you know, it's sort of, it's still a disgrace that David Batty ever put on a Blackburn shirt. And if they ever try to claim any part of his heritage, back to their dark mills and, and stay in them. Alfie kind of had the, maybe something of his time where you were able to uh, to get involved in a player in a way that maybe it's just not possible at the, the Champions League level in and Erling needs to take that advice of just keeping his uh, his true character um, behind the scenes as much as he can because people won't take it the way that they uh, they used to. The PSG celebration was really joyless and and it seemed like a very kind of unfair dig at a young player who hadn't really done much to to pick a fight. And it, you know, it's kind of in a very gentle way as, as weird as somebody like Keane waiting four to five years to enact what he saw as some justice for it, it wasn't an innocuous incident in the sense that Keane suffered a really serious injury at the time you know when, when that tackle at Ellen Road was or, or when the, the incident at Ellen Road happened but um, I, I'm absolutely certain that Haaland had any idea that, that the injury was that bad and you, you mentioned whether or being a, a lovely guy which he absolutely is I mean you'd struggle to find many nicer guys in the game than David and, and I, I interviewed him about this you're good to 10 years ago now and he did say and, and, and it kind of goes with his character that, that he kind of regretted with hindsight having a nibble at Keane you know as Keane was lying on the ground because he was genuinely injured and looking back it, it was the wrong thing to do but he kind of said that neither him nor Haaland took any pleasure in the fact that that, that had happened to Keane it was just one of those heat of the moment things where it turns out in retrospect that actually he has done done his knee and, and done it quite badly um, and I think you know, they were equally staggered that, you know, further down the line with Haaland and Keane, it had come to that at Old Trafford because nobody thought that there was anything in that instant that was hold, worth holding a grudge to that extent. But then that is Keane and he's a singular guy incidents in, in his career. That probably defines him more than most. Thanks to the good folks at Beer52.com, you got the chance to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to Beer52.com forward slash Phil, pay the postage of $4.95, and if that wasn't enough, as a listener to the Phil Hay Show, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer52, they've done all the legwork for you. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And the beauty of Beer52 is that you can leave any time, so the power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snacks thrown in too. Head to beer52.com forward slash Phil to get your free beer. And don't forget, right now, listeners to The Phil Hay Show, get two extra free beers. Final part of the Phil Hay Show now then, and we've been throwing this one open to you in the wake of the lockdown and the absence of any football. Phil, three options that you put on Twitter in a poll. Uh, we had Housen at Carlisle, McCormack at Charlton, and Candle at Tranmere as the three options for this week. How did it go? Yeah, so Candle was the last minute header at Tranmere, obviously in 2007, which was the first game after the 15-point deduction. Didn't get very many votes. McCormack at Charlton was the um, four-goal haul and four, not just four goals, four sensational finishes down there. It was it was probably actually the best 90 minutes of finishing that I've seen from an individual player in, in all the time that, that I've covered Leeds. But again, trailing well behind um, our Johnny um, against Callow United at Brunton Park 12 years ago now, but memories still pretty fresh for me I don't know about you three yeah very much so I, one of the best days of my post Premier League life that I think supporting Leeds going to that away leg on the terrace behind that goal it was it was an insane moment that one and, and it's obviously stuck in people's minds as well because that got 61.5% of the vote so I think a lot of people enjoyed it it was a brilliantly lead one experience as well with the because the open uncovered terrace and everything it, it really felt like 
of the moment. I think it's one of those that if we if we do end up back in the Premier League, you'll be able to show that goal and that stadium to to youngsters who maybe are, are more used to us signing Erling Haaland in the Champions League and say this this was actually genuinely as good as it got for a time. For anybody who doesn't remember it, the second leg of that playoff semi-final, we're 1-0 up, we needed a second goal, one minute of added time is being given um, before we head into extra time and Housen's shot hits the net at 90 minutes and 15 seconds and the away end behind the opposite goal absolutely erupts. What was it like from your point of view then, Phil? Were you in the press box? No, we were um, in the overflow area. So I was right down at the far side by the home end. So a perfect view for that, but um, literally miles away from the, the first goal that Housen scored at, at the start of the game. And the thing that, that is often overlooked is what a big performance that was at, at Brunton Park. Because if, if you remember the the first leg at Ellen Road it was packed and it was a hot night great atmosphere and Leeds played well for part of it and there was that that fabulous save from Kieran Westwood that kind of gloved the that curling um, Beckford finish just wide of the post and Carlisle scored and pretty much played Leeds off the park for the rest of uh, of the, the first leg and it was only a kind of hit and hope in the 96th minute that Candle headed down and, and Dougie Freeman turned in that suddenly made you feel that actually having been you know by some distance second best in, in that initial game they suddenly had a great chance going to Carlisle and, and it was wide open and I remember John Ward the, the Carlisle manager who actually put together a, a great team up there a great example of a team who just understood what they were about and understood how they were supposed to play and, and he'd cleverly kind of fitted in players who suited the system and suited the, the roles that, that they were being given and they were they were very slick with Danny Graham and Mark Bridge Wilkinson obviously Westwood in goal as well who, who was a, a top keeper in League One to, to say the least I remember him coming in after the first le- first leg end of, end of the first leg and saying to us look I am delighted that we've come here and won because it's it's not easy to do that but I have to say that I'd be so much happier if we were going up the road with a 2-0 advantage and it did just give Leeds a sniff and if you remember McAllister didn't make any changes to his lineup for the next game we all thought that on the back of what had happened at Ellen Road he'd, he'd almost be forced to switch things around and, and to shake it up a little bit but they, they went for a long walk on the morning of the game he decided he was going to stick with the 11 as it as it was and, and it paid off so spectacularly and my, my memory of that game at Carlisle is that from the moment Housen made it 1-0 on aggregate early on you never felt as if Carlisle was going to score again you, you never felt as if Leeds were going to let that go and, and much as it didn't look nailed on that Housen was going to bag that goal right at the very end you did feel that if anybody was going to win it it was going to be Leeds it was a glorious moment that as well I mean from studs I was right behind the net at the other end with my mate Patrick and I remember saying to him just nudging him as Housen picked the ball up I said he's going to score here and it's one of the few moments I've ever called right when it came to Leeds United and then when he did and you realised because you know, it takes a second to register doesn't it when you're at the other end of the ground you realise that it's gone in and I've said to the boys before on, on our podcast it's one of those goals where I've forgotten what happened between the ball hitting the net and then picking myself up off the floor I kind of it's just I blanked it out it was just sheer pandemonium he kind of catches the ball perfectly without catching it perfectly if you know what I mean it's when you look at the replay it's not a clean strike but he hits it exactly as he would have wanted to to get it away from Westwood's left hand and, and to squeeze it into the, the corner and Housen's brother Danny always said afterwards that he could he'd he reckon that forever he'd be able to do the commentary from from the sky coverage word for word for the rest of his life and, and we it, it was odd when the, the part of the ground I was sat in we were surrounded by Rangers fans because the night before um, Rangers had played down in Manchester in the UEFA Cup final against Senate St Petersburg um, and th- they tend to get a decent number not huge numbers but a decent number of Rangers fans dropped in on the way home and funnily enough I mean Dougie Freeman is a, is a massive massive Rangers fan and, and he was saying that he was genuinely in two minds about whether or not he could sneak down to Manchester the, the night before because he didn't want to miss the UEFA 
Cup final, but he knew that it would have been bad form for him to have gone down, you know, the night before a game like that with that Leeds were about to play. And and I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the end he missed it. I can't say 100. percent He certainly said that he didn't go. And I imagine if he had sneaked out, that that somebody would have would have spotted him. But it was a kind of odd odd atmosphere because we were surrounded by Rangers fans who I think were looking for Carlisle to win, but you know, all in all, were probably a little bit indifferent about it. But I do remember looking at the 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 home end as that goal went in and just kind of seeing staggered faces really who, who knew that they were beaten and also of walking down the tunnel after the Carlisle players had finished their, their warm down and were coming coming back up and it's probably the only time that I've ever been that close to the entire group of players in that sort of state of disappointment and they did look completely broken because as I say that was a very very good Carlisle team and they must have felt it 2-0 up at Ellen Road like it was it was entirely in their hands and some of them probably thought that they were they were pretty much there on the way to Wembley I, I've never seen such a state of disarray in a way and I don't think either I think I've seen some some good away performances and some last minute winners and things but as I say because it was so late it was one where the celebration went directly from the goal into full time and I think I think the full time whistle was blowing as people were still picking themselves up off the floor from the goal celebrations and I just remember getting back on the I'd, I'd gone on a coach for some reason just getting into the coach and it was like a weird silence for a little while where everyone was kind of just just almost it was the first time anyone got to actually take a breath after that it almost felt as as if the short turnaround between leg one and leg two meant that Leeds were, were operating on instinct rather than overthinking things too much. They, they had, I mean, they, they were qualified for the playoffs um, from the second last game of the season away at Yeovil onwards, which was um, the final week of April. And between that and the first leg against Carlisle, they, they had two and a half weeks, which is a long time to stew on a, a semi-final like that coming round. But then from the Monday, um, the, the first leg, they, they were away to Carlisle on the Thursday. And it, and it literally was between the travelling and, and the preparation and everything else, time that, that went in a flash. And I, I found it you know, I found it quite telling that from speaking to people about the subsequent final, which they lost to, to Fashion, that in many ways, the, the 10 days between the end of the semi-final and, and the final itself was too long. They, they spent... A lot of time down at Champneys um, near Watford, down south, um, just north of just north of London. So, so nicely placed for for, uh, for Wembley, but a good few nights there to get it. I think to get away from the city and to get away from the the chatter about the final, and then stayed in a, a, a the posh hotel in in London the night before the final itself. And and I think in the end, it almost felt as if they were away too long. It was it was too much of a build up. There was too much time to stew on it and too much time to get tense and and to really prepare themselves. And I can't say hundred percent whether that was the reason why they failed to turn up against Doncaster and and you have to reflect the fact that Doncaster under Sean O'Driscoll were themselves a, a very very good slick um, League One team but I think it, it was part of the reason why they were able to turn that, that semi-final on its head was because they had no time to sit and dwell on, on what had happened straight back into the second leg and, and crack on from there Do you think maybe that was one of the failings of that McAllister era that it was a little bit overprepared and a bit too technical maybe sometimes then? I know that there were players who who found McAllister hard to deal with? I know there were other players who thought very highly of him. Um, Luciano Becchio being one, he, he, he couldn't really speak highly enough of McAllister's management, and I think felt very guilty when McAllister did, did get sacked. But you know, I, I remember the defeat down at MK Dons, and, and I remember the players being at um, the LGI the Monday after for the traditional Christmas walkabout, and. You know, I, I can't deny that there were some players there who were virtually doing cartwheels about the fact that McAllister had gone and that Grayson was coming in. And, you know, that there was a feeling, and, and I don't know if this is fair to say, but that McAllister found it difficult to manage players who 
struggle to do what he wanted them to do and, and in many ways kind of levels that he would have played at and, and I don't think there's any question that when you're accustomed to being a UEFA Cup winner with Liverpool and a you know a, a top flight winner with Leeds United all the things that McAllister did captain in Scotland playing in, in World Cups that dropping into League One and, and dealing with the standard of players that you get in, in League One must be a, a bit of a challenge and to my mind, Grayson, Simon Grayson, his replacement, always seemed better suited to that. A bit, a bit more in touch, I think, and a bit more aware of, of how to deal with with League One. And, and McAllister tried his best to play some good football. He, he he didn't half bring Delph on in the period when Delph came into the team. And you know he was he was a huge champion of Delph. He, he knew right from the start when he came into the club that that he had bundles of talent and and had to be played. But yeah, you, you might be right. Just I think perhaps from time to time, just asking a bit too much or expecting a bit too much of players who who weren't good enough to produce the, the type of football that he was wanting. But that semi-final, very much reflecting the story that happens so often with Leeds, is that it's often followed by a massive disappointment. You know, you look at the high of the first leg against Derby uh, last season. Becchio well-placed in that um, playoff semi-final, swung later on in that game, didn't it? A great moment, counterpointed by such a disappointment. Uh, it's such a shame that Leeds seem to do this. I don't ever want to see another playoff again if it's all the same with you. Yeah, I think that, that was the feeling last season, wasn't it? As soon as Sheffield United and Norwich got away and you realised that it was back to the playoffs. As much as Leeds were the best team in the playoffs on, on the evidence to the season that had gone before, you couldn't help thinking and counting back through the number of times when they were in the playoffs and, and it didn't didn't happen. I always remember David Prutton saying that he, he does think, looking back, that they um, with that game at Carlisle and, and perhaps there was a bit too much of a sense immediately afterwards that 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 was job done and that having played that well and, and got through the semi-final in that fashion it was automatically going to transfer to, to Wembley and, and he talks about getting down to Wembley and getting out of the tunnel and going onto the pitch and saying that the, the kind of size of the stadium and the, the, the space that you feel down there you, you feel tiny in it it feels cavernous and, and he said it, it almost sucks your, your energy a little bit you kind of got to be able to to focus a bit more on the pitch because if you start paying too much attention to the surroundings it's just a, a huge huge distraction and and I'm with you I mean I, I never want to see I know here of the playoffs EFL playoffs ever again and I think you know even despite what's gone before we had the worst of them against Derby County last season and if you're not bitten after that then you never will be part of the disappointment of that playoff final was that Certainly for a while, I reflect on it maybe a bit differently now, but in the aftermath of it, I thought, well, that's that means the, the celebrations for the house and goal were essentially meaningless. I celebrated nothing there because all it was was getting to winning the place in a final that we ultimately didn't bother to turn up in. Which I guess reflects the opinion of the whole Bielsa, if you want to call it an experiment. It's been the most fantastic year, up to two years of our Leeds United supporting careers, but it needs to end in promotion. I agree with Michael about that. It's the contradiction I have is that when I think back to that house and goal and how great it was on the night, I immediately think forward to Wembley and the fact that within about two weeks we're back to contemplating another season in in League One. And what I find peculiar is that in contrast, when I think back to Becchio's goal against Millwall again in a playoff that Leeds lost, I don't really think about the result. And I don't know why that is. I, I just think about the goal and the reaction and, and the emotion of it. And for some reason, that goal still sticks out as one of the best I've seen, regardless of the fact that it counted for nothing and regardless of the fact that it was the same abject misery at full time as it was, well, perhaps not quite to the same extent as down at, at Wembley, but it amounted to, to the same thing. And yet, you know, everybody you speak to about that Becchio goal absolutely loves it. And, and whereas with the housing goal, there's always the caveat of, yeah, but we lost at Wembley. No goal seems to 
say that. Nobody seems to say, yeah, but we lost to Millwall. Everybody's just happy to, to look at that and say what a moment it was. Well, brilliant. We'll throw it back open to the lead supporting Twitterati next week and find out what we're going to talk about in part three then for that show. Get more great Leeds content by subscribing to The Athletic ad-free podcasts as a subscriber by listening through The Athletic app. 40% discount on your sub right now with a free trial by using the address theathletic.co.uk forward slash Leeds pod. We'll catch up with you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 